Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, Carrie Parker. Today, we have episode 335 for July 31st, 2023. Today, we have a new show for you. Uh, a couple of pre-show notes before I kind of get into the rundown. First of all, if you follow me on Facebook or Twitter or Mastodon, uh, I've already posted that you need to be updating your Apple devices. There was yet another important security fix that went out. So this is this is all your Apple devices, iPhones, iPads, Macs, whatever. Make sure you're getting those up to date with the latest and greatest software. There was an actively exploited bug that was fixed. So make sure you get that fixed. Also, a couple quick reminders. The Challenge Coin promotion is on. I finally am making those available again to my new patrons. To get all the details, you can go to fdsd.me slash promo823, as in August of 2023, uh, when this promotion is mainly running. That goes through the end of August, and for new patrons who meet certain criteria... Uh, you will qualify for a Dragon Challenge coin. These things are really cool. Check it out. Also, if you happen to be going to DEF CON, which is like next week, uh, it might be a little late to try to get your Dragon swag, but uh, if you want to try to sport some uh, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons gear, and if I see you, I will certainly come over and say hi. You need to go to fdsd.me slash merch. I don't know if they have express shipping. You know, heck, maybe you could have it sent to the hotel or something. <laughs> it's getting a little late, but... Uh, if you do happen to have something and I and I see you wearing it, uh, I will be certain to come up and introduce myself. So DEFCON 31 uh, is next week, the 31st year of DEFCON. My third trip, personally, uh, very much looking forward to it. Uh, Hacker Summer Camp in general is going to be fun. I'm going to be dropping into B-Sides for sure. I don't know if I'm going to get to Black Hat or not. Depends on if they're still giving a free, a free pass to uh, DEFCON folks, because that's probably the only reason I would go. But anyway, I'm getting super psyched about going to Vegas. I will say right now that the podcast schedule might get a little wonky in particular, um, not next Monday, but the Monday after that. I will be doing an interview for next Monday's show with a couple OG hackers from the Cult of the Dead Cow. That's supposed to happen tomorrow, so fingers crossed nothing goes goes wrong with that. But that should be the next interview podcast, which will be the Monday right before DEF CON. And by then, I will actually be in town. So my plan, and we'll, we'll see if this works, my plan is to actually try to record stuff with my portable recording rig and actually edit it while I'm there and post it from Vegas. I That's a lot of moving parts. That may or may not happen. So while I expect next Monday's show to come out on time, it's possible that the show after that maybe one day delayed. It may come out on Tuesday instead of Monday. We'll, we'll, we'll see. I'll, I'll, I'm going to try to do it remotely, but I may have to do all the editing and stuff once I get home. So uh, anyway, just heads up, there may be a little bit, a little bit of a schedule shift for that DEF CON show. All right. So again, new show for you today. I've got an interesting announcement from the White House I wanted to cover. There's also a, a new SEC or Securities and Exchange Commission rule uh, requiring that Companies reveal cyber attacks within four days. That's brand new and causing quite a stir. The Electronic Frontier Foundation is coming out against a particular act that is threatening encryption. And I also want to use that as an excuse to tell you about how you can find some of the other bills that they believe are bad and take direct action to try to contact your representatives and tell them that you don't like these bills. Then we got a story about Microsoft, and you've probably seen this on the news. There have been some hacks into government agencies and things that was looks to be the fault of Microsoft, but we'll talk a little bit about that. Got a rather interesting article about Facebook and some new 
privacy issues, violations, have come to light about the Onevo VPN product that they bought. There was a really disturbing article in Wired about some radio systems mostly used in Europe that have been found to contain, uh, they call it a backdoor. I, I may take some issue with that phrasing, but it's got some interesting aspects to it that I wanted to cover. So we'll talk about that. There was a very creepy article about a uh, use of automatic license plate readers to bust a guy who was selling drugs, but how they caught him was just, again, really, really creepy. Uh, we, we need to discuss that. Apple is threatening to pull FaceTime and iMessage out of the UK over a proposed surveillance law change. And then a couple articles about APIs, one from Apple, one from Google. And on one case where Apple is demanding that its developers limit the use of certain APIs to prevent fingerprinting, Google is promoting a new web integrity API uh, that supposedly is there for your benefit, but it really is for theirs. So we'll we'll get into that. There will be, again, no Dear Carrie question of the week. Honestly, I'm running out of questions. People have stopped submitting for whatever reason. Uh, I need some more. So if you have a burning question, go to fdsd.me slash Q&A for all the details on how to submit those. But basically, email me your questions. And I honestly, I usually respond to the emails pretty much right away. So you're not waiting for me to talk about it on the air to get the answer to your question. But I queue them up and eventually do them on the air as well so that other people can benefit from the answer to the question. And I need more. So go to fdsd.me slash Q&A and get all the information there about how to send me send me a question that I will read on the air. And then I've got my tip of the week, uh, which I'm titling Less is More or Simplify, which is part two of my series on how to improve the security of your home network. All right, there's your preview. Let's get to it. All right. First up, this is an announcement from the White House, and it's about a labeling program they wanted to start. And this is something I've been kind of wanting for a long time. You know, it remains to be seen how well this is going to play out, but let me read this and, and then I'll give you my take. The Biden-Harris administration today announced a cybersecurity certification and labeling program to help Americans more easily choose smart devices that are safer and less vulnerable to cyber attacks. The new U.S. Cyber Trust Mark program proposed by the Federal Communications Commission, or the FCC chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel, would raise the bar for cybersecurity across common devices, including smart refrigerators, smart microwaves, smart televisions, smart climate control systems, smart fitness trackers, and more. This is the latest example of President Biden's leadership on behalf of hardworking families, from cracking down on hidden junk fees to strengthening cyber protections and protecting the privacy of people in their own homes. Several major electronics, appliance, and consumer product manufacturers, retailers, and trade associations have made voluntary commitments to increase cybersecurity for the products they sell. Manufacturers and retailers announcing support and commitments today to further the program include Amazon, Best Buy, Google, LG Electronics, Logitech, and Samsung. Under the proposed new program, consumers would see a newly created U.S. cyber trust mark in the form of a distinct shield logo applied to products meeting established cybersecurity criteria. The goal of the program is to provide tools for consumers to make informed decisions about the relative security of the products they choose to bring into their homes. 
Acting under its authorities to regulate wireless communications devices, the FCC is expected to seek public comment on rolling out the proposed Voluntary Cybersecurity Labeling Program, which is expected to be up and running in 2024. As proposed, the program would leverage stakeholder-led efforts to certify and label products based on specific cybersecurity criteria as published by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, that, for example, requires unique and strong default passwords, data protection, software updates, and incident detection capabilities. Now, it goes on for a little bit, but a couple of the other key things that they've kind of put on QR codes on these on these devices with part of the label that you can look up a National Registry of Certified Devices and give more specific information. So, you know, as you're going down the aisles in your big box store or shopping online, hopefully somehow, they will show this little shield symbol and then maybe there will be a QR code or uh, on a physical product or presumably a link, a clickable link on an online product that will take you to further information about this stuff. And NIST already has some guidelines around these things, but they're going to be uh, updating them, I guess. And particularly, they're going to be focusing on uh, consumer-grade routers, which your home router, as we've said many times in this show, is a crucial, crucial piece of electronics in your home network. It's really, uh, you know, it's your bodyguard. It's the, it's the gateway. It's the thing that protects everything in your house from everything out on the internet. Uh, so these are all these are all good things. Uh, I'm glad to see this is happening. It's a good first step. We need more things like this. But, you know, having some transparency, having some something, even something as simple as a, a little check mark, basically, that the consumer can look at and say, oh, well, this one has it and this one doesn't, hopefully will mean that more companies will seek to earn this mark. And therefore, generally speaking, our product should be more secure. So, could it be better? Sure. But this is this is a nice first step. And I'm glad to see that we keep making progress on this kind of stuff. All right. Another US centric kind of thing. This is from the SEC. And actually, this is the US catching up to the rest of the world, to be honest. <laughs> so uh, let me read this uh, from the Hacker News. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, on Wednesday approved new rules that required publicly traded companies to publicize details of a cyber attack within four days of identifying that it has a quote-unquote material impact on their finances, marking a major shift in how computer breaches are disclosed. The new obligations mandate that companies reveal the incident's nature, scope, and timing, as well as its impact. This disclosure, however, may be delayed by an additional period of up to 60 days should it be determined that giving out such specific would, quote, pose a substantial risk to national security or public safety, end quote. They also necessitate registrants to describe on an annual basis the methods and strategies used for assessing, identifying, and managing material risks from cybersecurity threats, detail the material effects or risks arising as a result of those events, and share information about ongoing or completed remediation efforts. And this is a quote from Safe Security CEO Socket Modi. And they say, quote, the key word here is material and being able to determine what that actually means. Most organizations are not prepared to comply with the SEC guidelines as they cannot determine materiality, which is core to shareholder protection. They lack the systems to quantify risk at broad and granular levels, unquote. The policy, first proposed in March of 2022, is seen as an effort to bring more transparency into the threats faced by U.S. companies from cybercrime and nation-state actors, close the gaps in cybersecurity defense and disclosure practices, and harden the systems against data theft and intrusions. 
Tenable CEO and Chairman Emmett Yorin said the new rules on cyber risk management and incident disclosure is quote-unquote right on the money, and that they are a quote, dramatic step toward greater transparency and accountability. When cyber breaches have real-life consequences and reputational costs, investors should have the right to know about an organization's cyber risk management activities, unquote. That said, concerns have been raised that the time frame is too tight, leading to possibly inaccurate disclosures given that it may take companies weeks or even months to fully investigate a breach. To complicate the matter further, premature breach notifications could tip off other attackers to a susceptible target and exacerbate security risks. And this is a quote from James McQuiggan, a security awareness advocate at NoB4. And James says, quote, the new requirement set forth by the SEC requiring organizations to report cyber attacks or incidents within four days seems aggressive, but sits at a more lax time frame than other countries. Within the EU, the UK, Canada, South Africa, and Australia, companies have 72 hours to report a cyber incident. In other countries like China and Singapore, it's 24 hours. India has to report the breach within six hours. Either way, organizations should have repeatable and well-documented incident response plans with communication plans, procedures, and requirements on who is brought into the incident and when, unquote. All right, so this goes on. But I think this is, I'm not an expert on this, but I I seem to recall that we didn't really have solid stuff around this. Uh, And this is kind of an interesting way to do it. And basically, it's doing it from a public company perspective. So so it's only really applies to companies that are, you know, like traded on the stock exchange. And that is how the US Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, is the one tasked with enforcing this. So this won't apply to private companies. For example, Twitter is now a private company. I'm sorry, X is now a private company. So this would not necessarily apply to them. So this is kind of an angle shot. It's 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 kind of a weird way to go about enforcing this. But it's, you know, again, it's baby steps. It's something that we have needed. We've we've needed more disclosure rules. Uh, it's good to have, you know, a common standard. Whether or not four days is the right amount of time, you know, what the details are about when and how there might be exceptions to this, all that needs to be worked out. And I don't know the exact details of this, and I haven't reviewed them closely enough to to give an opinion on it. But I just wanted to let you know that this was in the works, that this kind of thing is happening. And generally speaking, yeah, we, we need this kind of stuff. So hopefully this will work out well. All right, next up, this is from the EFF. And this is about a, a very particular bill, the Cooper Davis Act, that they feel is a threat to encryption. But also, they've had a really interesting series going lately about bad bills and have put up a really nice page that lists them all and gives you quick access buttons to access your representatives about each and every one of them. So this is kind of a placeholder for some of that, but it's also interesting. So anyway, let me get to the article. Last week, the Senate Committee on the Judiciary amended and passed S.1080, which would require private messaging services, social media companies, and even cloud providers to report their users to the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, if they find out about certain illegal drug sales. The bill, also called the Cooper Davis Act, laudably seeks to address the proliferation of illegally made fentanyl and resulting overdose deaths in the United States. Unfortunately, the amended bill is still likely to result in a host of inaccurate reports to law enforcement by prodding internet companies to trawl through their users' innocent conversations, including discussions about past drug use or treatment. This bill contains no warrant requirement, no required notice, and limited user protections, and deserves to be defeated on the Senate floor. Although the bill does not explicitly require providers to seek out illegal activity by users, it walks up to that line by requiring reporting when providers obtain actual knowledge of the 
business activity and creating criminal penalties for failure to do so. S1080 is modeled on existing law that requires providers to report actual knowledge of child sexual abuse material, or CSAM, to a group called the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, a quasi-governmental entity that later forwards on some reports to law enforcement. Companies base some of their reporting on matches found by comparing digital signatures of images to an existing database of previously removed CSAM. Notably, this bill requires reporting directly to the DEA, and the content at issue, drug sales, is markedly harder and more subjective to identify. While actual CSAM is unprotected by the First Amendment, mere discussion of drug use is protected speech. Due to the liability they would face for failing to report, some companies may overreport using content scanning tools that we know have large error rates in other contexts. Unfortunately, the Judiciary Committee's amendments increase the incentives on companies to search their users' private communications for discussions of drugs, even at the expense of undermining encryption and other important security measures. The most concerning update to the bill is a new carve-out which says that providers cannot be penalized for failing to conduct, quote, additional verification or investigation, unquote, into users' communications unless they, quote, deliberately blind, quote, themselves. Just as in the Earnit Act, which we discussed, by the way, with Ernesto Falcone, this language squarely implicates the very security and privacy features that protect users' communications from prying eyes, especially those of the companies themselves. This language will encourage providers to undermine those features out of fear that law enforcement will argue that, by taking themselves out of the loop and allowing all users to have truly secure conversation, providers are blinding themselves. Although the amendments improve on other areas of the bill, most notably by requiring some minimization of reports, the anti-encryption language is a step backward in an already extremely flawed bill. It deserves to be defeated on the Senate floor. So I think that covers that particular bill pretty well. Uh, but again, I, I wanted to talk about this also because, uh, and there's a link in the show notes for this, EFF has put together a list of bad bills uh, with you know discussions about them. You know, this is why they think they're bad bills. Uh, but they also, and they've done this in the past, they've got some really nice tools for to help you find your representatives and to email them your concerns about this. So if you agree with the with them with the EFF that these are bad bills and you will want to take an easy step to register with your representative that you think that these are bad bills and why, they've kind of got templates already set up. They will actually format an email for you. It'll help you find your particular representatives and how to email them. And you are free to edit this email any way you want. In fact, I encourage you to do so but it gives you kind of a template, uh, a starting point. So EFF is great about doing stuff like this. So I kind of wanted to read this article, but then also draw your attention to the fact um, that they make it really easy for people to find and reach out to their representatives over stuff like this uh, and to you know register your opinion with them. All right, next up, this is from TechCrunch and it's about Microsoft. Uh, they got in some trouble <laughs> recently and it hit the news. So you may have seen this. So uh, I wanted to read you uh, this article, which is much longer than this, but I'm going to just give you the highlights and then we'll talk about it. Microsoft still doesn't know or want to share how China backed hackers stole a key that allowed them to stealthily break into dozens of email boxes, including those belonging to several federal government agencies. In a blog post Friday, Microsoft said it was a matter of ongoing investigation how the hackers obtained a Microsoft signing key that was abused to forge authentication tokens that allowed the hackers access to inboxes as if they were the rightful owners. 
Reports say targets include U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, U.S. State Department officials, and other organizations not yet publicly revealed. Microsoft disclosed the incident last Tuesday, attributing the month-long activity to a newly discovered espionage group it calls Storm 0558, which it believes has a strong nexus to China. U.S. cybersecurity agency CISA said the hacks, which began in mid-May, included a small number of government accounts said to be in the single digits and that the hackers exfiltrated some unclassified email data. In a blog post, Microsoft In a blog post, Microsoft said the hackers acquired one of its consumer signing keys, or MSA key, which the company uses to secure consumer email accounts, like for accessing Outlook.com. Microsoft said it initially thought the hackers were forging authentication tokens using an acquired enterprise signing key, which are used to sign corporate and enterprise email accounts. But Microsoft found that the hackers were using the consumer MSA key to forge tokens that allowed them to break into enterprise inboxes. Microsoft said this was because of a, quote, validation error in Microsoft code, unquote. Microsoft said it has blocked, quote-unquote, all actor activity related to this incident, suggesting that the incident is over and that the hackers lost access. Though it's unclear how Microsoft lost control of its own keys, the company says it's hardened its key issuance systems, presumably to prevent hackers from churning out another digital skeleton key. The hackers made one mistake. By using the same key to raid several inboxes, Microsoft said it allowed investigators to, quote, see all actors access requests, which followed this pattern across both our enterprise and consumer systems, unquote. To wit, Microsoft knows who is compromised and said it notified those affected. With the immediate threat thought to be over, Microsoft now faces scrutiny for its handling of the incident, thought to be the biggest breach of unclassified government data since the Russian espionage campaign that hacked SolarWinds in 2020. As noted by Ars Technica's Dan Gooden, Microsoft went to great lengths to do damage control in its blog post, avoiding terms like zero-day, referring to when a software maker has zero-days notice to fix a vulnerability that has already been exploited. Whether or not the bug or its exploitation fits everyone's definition of a zero-day, Microsoft went out of its way to avoid describing it as such, or even to call it a vulnerability. Compounding the key link and its misuse was a lack of visibility into the intrusions by the government departments themselves. Microsoft is also taking heat for reserving security logs for the government accounts with the company's top-tier package that may have helped other incident responders identify malicious activity. Now, this article is much, much longer. If you're really interested in some of the details, again, as always, there are links in the show notes. But a couple things I want to talk about. So, there is this notion of these security keys, and sometimes when you set up these hierarchical security type accounts, there is kind of a a special master key. It's a hierarchy, and from that master key, you can generate other keys that will work. Think of it like, uh, you know, if you're the custodian in charge of a large building and you've got several janitors and maids and people that need to get into certain doors, you can probably have a master key for all the doors and then you can issue certain keys to them uh, that maybe get them into certain doors. But in this case, with the, the master key, you can create these other keys. And somehow Microsoft failed to protect this key and it got loose. So this is another case where a master key is really gummed up the works and because as soon as that master key gets loose, Everybody is vulnerable. Now, it turns out that it looks like this particular threat actor knew exactly what it wanted. We're assuming it's China. The people they went after or the organizations they went after looks like maybe it's in retaliation for some trade stuff, sanctions, whatever we've got going on. 
But I honestly, I, I'm not that familiar with the politics of it. So I won't say anymore. I just I maybe don't look stupid. But the other thing that this article goes on to talk about at length, which I didn't want to bother reading, I'll just describe, is that apparently Microsoft's accounts have, you know, have multiple tiers depending on what you want to pay for and what features that you get. But at the lower tiers of these kind of services, you don't get access to these rather important security logs. You have to have a top tier account to get access to those. And, and that was what this was talking about here toward the end. And I think I read another article saying that Microsoft has now changed and made these security logs available to all the customers of this, even if they're not at the top tier, which so nothing else. Uh, that is one good outcome to this. But just to recap, I, it sounds like they only got unclassified emails, though a lot of important stuff can still be unclassified. So I don't want to downplay this attack. It's a big deal. But the real issue here is is with Microsoft and how they did not keep their key secure and how they kind of did not allow access to important forensic information that would have allowed some of these other companies to do better investigations. All right, next up, this is from Financial Review. I don't know if I've ever read an article from these guys before. I think I ran across this on social media. And it actually brings up an issue that we talked about a while back, and that was Facebook buying this VPN company called Anevo. But some new information about that has come to light, and I think it's good to keep this in mind when we're thinking about VPNs that we use. So again, this is from a financial review. Meta, the operator of social media platform Facebook, has admitted it used data from software marketed to users as a way to keep their personal data safe as a quote-unquote business intelligence tool for its own purposes. The company acquired Onavo, and that's O-N-A-V-O, a virtual private network software app in 2013 for about $200 million and marketed it to its users as a way to quote, keep you and your data safe, unquote, by keeping their personal activity private. But internal documents prepared by Meta and its subsidiary Facebook Israel suggested Onevo user data was being used for another purpose. One document read, quote, The best part about these apps is that it gives us a sample of users who, are we, who we are able to know nearly everything they are doing on their mobile device, unquote. The data, which was aggregated and anonymized, was used to help advertisers, quote, identify local competitors, notice big trends, find overlaps in use, benchmark your performance in significant margin differences, notice a shift in consumer attention, unquote, the same document added. Details of the internal meta documents are contained in new filings in the federal court. The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission sued Meta, then known as Facebook, in December of 2020 over the marketing of Onevo. The ACCC has not made any comment about the matter since filing its complaint, but documents show the regulator and two Meta subsidiaries, Facebook Israel and Onevo, have reached an agreement to the social media company to pay a $20 million fine, which, by the way, is absolutely nothing. The data was viewed by Facebook employees on a dashboard, and if the Oneva user had an account on the social media platform, it could be combined with information taken from the platform. According to joint filings, Onevo collected and sent to Meta the type of device, its operating system, the mobile carrier or network, IP address, location information, and unique device identifiers. It also collected information about the user's mobile applications and data usage, including the names and details of the applications installed on their device, the user's use of those applications, the websites they visited, and the amount of data they used. In 2018, BuzzFeed News reported that Meta, then known as Facebook, acquired WhatsApp because Oneva allowed it to track how many people were using the product over its own messaging service. Let me stop real quick. So, <laughs> 
the, what they're saying there is Facebook had Onevo at the time, was using it on people's devices and using Onevo to figure out what other messaging apps people were using and discovered that WhatsApp was really popular and in fact, more popular than Facebook Messenger and that that data that they gleaned through the Onevo DP, VPN basically was the impetus for them buying WhatsApp. All right, back to the article. Despite this, Facebook continued to market Onevo as a way for users to keep their messaging traffic safe from companies trying to analyze their online activity. Meta shut Onevo in early 2019, months after it was pulled from the Apple Store because it violated privacy rules. Think of that. A VPN app was pulled because it was violating privacy rules. It was also removed from the Google Play Store after it was disclosed that Facebook was using Onevo to target young users, asking them to install the Facebook research app, which collected search history, personal messaging, photos, videos, and emails. This was unrelated to the ACCC case. The Meta firms now admit the statements made in the App Store and Google Play Store were likely to mislead or deceive, and the absence of sufficient disclosures meant Australians did not know what their data was being used for. So again, I, I think we did talk about this back then in 2018 or 2019 when some of these stories first started coming out. But I mean, obviously, I love to beat up on Facebook because <laughs> they're just so, so bad with privacy. But I just wanted to, you know, to also point out the fact that virtual private networks, VPN apps are not necessarily private. I mean, if they work well, they should protect your traffic from your device to the VPN server, meaning that your ISP or your local Wi-Fi hotspot or whatever should not be able to see your data. But it does mean that you're giving full access to all of that information to your VPN provider. You are trading your mistrust of your local ISP, whatever that is, for the VPN provider, but that's not always a good choice. And we find out in this particular case that Meta or Facebook was absolutely using that VPN specifically for gathering data about its users. And they got caught and they got sued. Now that, again, $20 million is absolutely nothing, a total drop in the bucket. I'm really, really shocked that it's so low. But at least the case did allow these facts to come forward and allowed me to share them with you. All right, next up, this is a really, really long article, and I've tried to shorten it, but it's really kind of hard to do. So you got to bear with me here a little bit, but it's just a fascinating story. And it, it's about uh, basically backdoors or weakened encryption in a kind of a crucial communications service and device devices. So I've edited down this this article as much as I can. And it's still pretty long. Uh, so again, bear with me. Let me get through this and then, and then I'll review it when we're done. For more than 25 years, a technology used for critical data and voice radio communications around the world has been shrouded in secrecy to prevent anyone from closely scrutinizing its security properties for vulnerabilities. But now it's finally getting a public airing thanks to a small group of researchers in the Netherlands who got their hands on its viscera and found serious flaws, including a deliberate backdoor. And I'm not sure I agree with that phrasing, but I'll come back to that. The backdoor, known for years by vendors that sold the technology, but not necessarily by customers, exists in an encryption algorithm baked into radios sold for commercial use in critical infrastructure. It's used to transmit encrypted data and commands in pipelines, railways, the electric grid, mass transit, and freight trains. It would also allow someone to snoop on communications to learn how a system works, then potentially send commands to the radios that could trigger blackouts, halt gas pipeline flows, or reroute trains. 
Researchers found a second vulnerability in a different part of the same radio technology that is used in more specialized systems sold exclusively to police forces, prison personnel, military, intelligence agencies, and emergency services, such as the C-2000 communication system used by Dutch police, fire brigades, ambulance services, and Ministry of Defense for mission-critical voice and data communications. The flaw would let someone decrypt encrypted voice and data communications and send fraudulent messages to spread misinformation or redirect personnel and forces during critical times. Three Dutch security analysts discovered the vulnerabilities, five in total, in a European radio standard called TETRA, or Terrestrial Trunked Radio, which is used in radios by Motorola, DAM, that's D-A-M-M, Hytera, and others. The standard has been used in radios since the 90s, but the flaws remained unknown because encryption algorithms used in Tetra were kept secret until now. The technology is not widely used in the U.S., where other radio standards are more commonly deployed. But Caleb Mathis, a consultant with Ampere Industrial Security, conducted open-source research for Wired and uncovered contracts, press releases, and other documentation showing Tetra-based radios are used in at least two dozen critical infrastructures in the U.S. Because Tetra is embedded in radios supplied through resellers and system integrators like Powertrunk, it's difficult to identify who might be using them and for what. But Mathis helped Wired identify several electric utilities, a state border, control agency, an oil refinery, chemical plants, a mass major transit system on the East Coast, three international airports that use them for communications among security and ground crew personnel, and a U.S. Army training base. Researchers at Midnight Blue in the Netherlands discovered the Tetra vulnerabilities, which they're calling Tetra Burst, in 2021, but agreed not to disclose them publicly until radio manufacturers could create patches and mitigations. Not all the issues can be fixed with a patch, however, and it's not clear which manufacturers have prepared them for customers. Motorola, one of the largest radio vendors, didn't respond to repeated inquiries from Wired. The researchers say anyone using radio technologies should check with their manufacturer to determine if the devices are using Tetra and what fixes or, mitigation, or mitigations are available. The researchers plan to present their findings next month at the Black Hat Security Conference, and that's part of Hacker Summer Camp with DEF CON and Besides that I'm going to, when they will release detailed technical analysis as well as the secret Tetra encryption algorithms that have been unavailable to the public until now. They hope others with more expertise will dig into the algorithms to see if they can find other issues. Tetra was developed in the 90s by the European Telecommunications Standards Institute, or ETSI. The standard includes four encryption algorithms, TEA1, 2, and 3, that can be used by radio manufacturers in different products depending on their intended use and, and customer. TEA1 is for commercial uses. For radios used in critical infrastructure in Europe and the rest of the world, though, it is also designed for use in public safety agencies and military, according to the ETSI document, and the researchers found police agencies that uses it. TEA-2 is restricted for use in Europe by police, emergency services, military, and intelligence agencies. TEA-3 is available for police and emergency services outside of Europe in countries deemed quote-unquote friendly to the EU, such as Mexico and India. Those not considered friendly, such as Iran, only had the option to use TEA-1. Critical infrastructure in the U.S. and other countries use TETRA for machine-to-machine -machine communication in SCADA, that's S-C-A-D-A, and other industrial control system settings, especially in widely distributed pipelines, railways, and electric grids, where wired and cellular communications may not be available. Although the standard itself is publicly available for review, the encryption algorithms are only available with a signed NTA to trusted parties, such as radio manufacturers. The vendors have to include protections in their products to make it difficult for anyone to extract the algorithms and analyze them. 
All four Tetra encryption algorithms use 80-bit keys, which, even more than two decades after their release, still provides sufficient security to prevent someone from cracking them, the researchers say. And I'm not sure about that. I guess it depends on the algorithms, but 80 bits seem pretty short. But TEA1 has a feature that reduces its key to just 32 bits, less than half the key's length. The researchers were able to crack it in less than a minute using a standard laptop and just four ciphertexts. Brian Murgatroyd, chair of the technical body of Etsy responsible for the Tetra standard, objects to calling this a backdoor. He says that when they developed the standard, they needed an algorithm for commercial use that could meet export requirements to be used outside Europe. And then in 1995, a 32-bit key still provided security, though he acknowledges that with today's computing power, that's not the case. Matthew Green, a Johns Hopkins University cryptographer and professor, calls the weakened key a quote-unquote disaster. Furthermore, he says, quote, I wouldn't say it's equivalent to using no encryption, but it's really, really bad, unquote. With regard to fixes for the other problems the researchers found, Murgatroyd, Murgatroyd says Etsy fixed the one issue in a revised Tetra standard published last October, and they created three additional algorithms for vendors to use, including one that replaces TEA1. Vendors have created firmware updates that fix the main fix the one issue, but the problem with TEA1 cannot be fixed with an update. The only solution for that is to use another algorithm, not an easy thing to switch, or to add end-to-end encryption on top of Tetra, something that one of the researchers says is impractical. It's very expensive since the encryption has to be applied to every device, it requires some downtime to do the upgrade, something not always feasible for critical infrastructure, and can create incompatibility issues with other components. As for asking their vendor to switch out TEA1 for one of the new algorithms meant to replace it, the researcher said this is problematic as well, since Etsy plans to keep those algorithms secret, like the others, asking users to trust again that the algorithms have no critical weaknesses. And this researcher said, quote, there's a very high chance that the replacement algorithm for TEA1 will be weakened as well, unquote. So there's a lot more details in this article, believe it or not, I only read you part of that. But there's a couple things going on here. First of all, and the, what this article is kind of trying to highlight here is that you really should not be rolling your own encryption, first of all, and you can't keep the algorithms a secret. That is not how it works. That is not a best practice. The best practice for uh, cybersecurity and cryptography these days is to make the algorithms public, let researchers and people who know what they're doing beat up on them and try to find flaws so that you can get them fixed. This organization, Etsy, in this case at least, was counting on what we call security by obscurity, thinking that, well, we can't tell them how we do it because we if we tell them how they do it, they might figure out how to break it. Well, that is actually the whole point. You want to put it out there. You want to have other people grade your homework. You can't grade your own homework to make sure that these things really are secure because it turns out that they weren't, that they actually had flaws. And if they had made them public, they might have been able to find those things before distributing them out to a whole bunch of radios that probably can't be replaced or upgraded. And then the other interesting part of this article to me is the fact that we're still, to this day, getting bit by the crypto wars of the 1990s, back when the US government, for one, tried to limit the quality of encryption software that could be exported outside the United States. And in this, in this case, it was Europe that was trying to prevent you know high-quality encrypted products from being exported outside of Europe. So they deliberately weakened this algorithm from an 80-bit key down to a 32-bit key, which even if you know nothing about security, you can tell that <laughs> that's a lot lower. 
And because the way this stuff works, it's actually, it's not a linear thing. It's an exponential thing. It's way, way easier to crack. And they knew it. And and they understood this going out. Part of this article I didn't read said that it was alluded to in some of the documents released by Edward Snowden that the US intelligence agencies were well aware that TEA1 algorithm was weak and that they could use it to spy on other people using this tech this tetra technology in other countries. So all this to say, encryption is really important. Doing it right is is very important. Having it available for public scrutiny is crucial. You can't hide it. You're you're going to make a mistake and you need to have it reviewed by others. That is why all the best encryption algorithms are completely 100% public and are beat up mercilessly by security researchers before they are adopted widely. And you can't just build in these weaknesses. I, I, I'm not sure it's really a backdoor, but I suppose it effectively is, right? If if I put a if I put a knowingly weak lock on something, a lock that I know that I can easily pick, and I let that lock be sold to others, knowing that if anybody who uses that lock, I can break into whatever they try to lock with it. That's maybe not a, the exact definition of a backdoor. To me, the de- definition of a backdoor is there's actual code in the product that if you knew it was there and know how to exploit it, you just get right in. That to me is a true backdoor. This is really just weakened encryption. But this was done back in the day because they didn't want the quote unquote bad guys to have encryption that they couldn't crack. Well, guess what? It turned around and bit all of us anyway. Okay, getting off my soapbox, <laughs> moving on. Uh, this is an article from Forbes, which I try to be careful which articles I pick from Forbes, but I think this one is worth reading. And it's about surveillance again, and how it can be abused and is being abused. And this one in particular is about ALPRs or automatic license plate recognition. All right. So let me read this from Forbes. In March of 2022, David Zayas was driving down the Hutchinson River Parkway in Scarsdale. His car, a gray Chevrolet, was entirely unremarkable, as was its speed. But to the Westchester County Police Department, the car was a cause for concern and Zayas a possible criminal. Its powerful new AI tool had identified the vehicle's behavior as suspicious. Searching through a database of 1.6 billion license plate records collected over the last two years from locations across New York State, the AI determined that Zayas's car was on a journey typical of a drug trafficker. According to the Department of Justice prosecutor filing, it made nine trips from Massachusetts to different parts of New York between October 2020 and August of 2021, following routes known to be used by narcotics pushers and for conspicuously short stays. So, on March 10th of last year, Westchester PD pulled him over and searched his car, finding 112 grams of crack cocaine, a semi-automatic pistol, and $34,000 in cash inside, according to court documents. A year later, Zayas pled guilty to drug trafficking charges. The previously unreported case is a window into the evolution of AI-powered policing and a harbinger of the constitutional issues that will inevitably accompany it. Typically, automatic license plate recognition, ALPR, technology is used to search for plates linked to specific crimes. But in this case, it was used to examine the driving patterns of anyone passing one of Westchester County's 480 cameras over a two-year period. Zayas's lawyer, Ben Gold, contested the AI gathered evidence against his client, decrying it as, quote-unquote, dragnet surveillance. And he had the data to back it up. A FOIA 
that's Freedom of Information Act request, he filed with the Westchester police revealed that the ALPR system was scanning over 16 million license plates a week across 480 ALPR cameras. Of those systems, 434 were stationary, attached to poles and signs, while the remaining 46 were mobile, attached to police vehicles. The AI was not just looking at license plates either. It had also been taking notes on vehicles' make, model, and color. Useful when a plate number for a suspect vehicle isn't visible or is unknown. Westchester PD's license plate surveillance system was built by Recor, that's R-E-K-O-R, a $125 million market cap AI company trading on the NASDAQ. Local reporting and public government data reviewed by Forbes show Recor has sold its ALPR tech to at least 23 police departments and local governments across America, from Lauderdale, Florida to San Diego, California. That's not including more than 40 police departments across New York State who can avail themselves of Westchester County PD's system, which runs out of its real-time crime center. Recor's big sell is that its software doesn't require new cameras. It can be installed in already deployed ones, whether owned by the government, a business, or a consumer. It also runs the Recor Public Safety Network, an opt-in project that has been aggregating vehicle location data from customers for the last three years since it launched with the information from 30 states that, at the time, were reading 150 million plates per month. That kind of centralized database with cross-state data sharing has troubled civil rights activists, especially in light of recent revelations that Sacramento County Sheriff's Office was sharing license plate reader data with states that have banned abortion, which is a story we covered two weeks ago. And this is a quote from uh, Brett Max Kaufman, who is senior staff attorney at the ACLU. And he says, quote, the scale of this kind of surveillance is just incredibly massive, unquote. Pointing to both Recor and Flock, a rival that runs a similar pan-American surveillance network of license plate readers, he described warrantless monitoring of citizens en masse like this as, quote, quite horrifying, unquote. With so many agencies now collecting license plate records and the dawn of more advanced AI-powered surveillance, privacy advocates are raising the alarm about a technology expanding with little in the way of legal protections for the average American. And another quote from Kaufman, quote, You've seen the systems totally metastasized to the point that the capabilities of a local police department would really shock most people. This is just the beginning of the applications of this technology, unquote. The ALPR market is growing thanks to a glut of Recor rivals, including Flock, Motorola, Genetech, Genoptic, and many others who have contracts across federal and state governments. They're each trying to grab a slice of a market estimated to be worth at least $2.5 billion dollars. But it's not easy. Reporting first quarter results for this year, Recor saw $6.2 million in revenue with a $12 million net loss. It reported a similar loss in the same quarter last quarter. Its stock is currently trading at about $275, down from an April 2021 high of $2345 per share. In pursuit of that elusive profit, the market is looking beyond law enforcement to retail and fast food. Corporate giants have toyed with the idea of tying license plates to customer identities. McDonald's and White Castle have already begun using ALPR to tailor drive-through experiences, detecting returning customers and using past orders to guide them through the ordering process or offer individualized promotion offers. The latter restaurant chain, or White Castle, uses Recortech to do that via a partnership with MasterCard. With the sheer breadth of expansion, it's becoming increasingly difficult to avoid the watchful eyes of government and corporate surveillance, or even know where they are. As Gold found out in trying to get data from the Westchester government, authorities are not legally obligated to provide information on the whereabouts of cameras. 
And this is a quote from Gold, quote, Given the vast nature of the ALPR network and the need to travel public highways to engage in modern life, avoiding ALPR surveillance is both unfeasible if impossible, unquote. So I know I've done a lot of articles lately on ALPR, but this technology is exploding. It's being used all over the place, and these companies are sharing data with each other and vast centralized networks. So it's not just even local stuff. It's being shared all over the country, probably further. And it's just another way in which we're being tracked. Yes, it's indirect. I mean, the license plate is associated with the car, which is associated with the registered driver. And, you know, maybe the person behind the wheel is not the person who owns the car when when the license plate is scanned. But it still paints a pretty good picture, especially if there's enough of these things about to track your location at multiple points and, and to save all this history somewhere so it can be looked up. And then on top of all that is this AI system that said, hey, we were able to go back probably uh, with all this data and say, okay, we convicted these people of, of trafficking and drugs. Let's go back and look what patterns their car had so that we can program our AI system to say, hey, if you see any more cars traveling in similar patterns going on these routes at, at these times of day or week, staying for approximately this long before returning, let's flag that vehicle as a potential car being used in drug trafficking. And they did it in this case and actually, and turns out the guy actually was a drug dealer, meaning the system in this case worked. But you also have to imagine there'll be plenty of cases where it won't work. And second, is this really probable cause? You know, could we have an AI algorithm that allows somebody to be pulled over and searched based on the results of an AI algorithm? Man, this is this is just crazy stuff. We've got to figure out what what the laws and restrictions around this technology need to be and get them in place ASAP. All right, next up, this is from Mac Rumors, uh, and it's about a UK bill, uh, an amendment to a UK law proposing enhanced surveillance. Apple says it will pull services, including FaceTime and iMessage in the UK, if plans to amend surveillance legislation that would require technology companies to make major security and privacy changes go ahead. The UK government is planning to update the Investigatory Powers Act, or IPA, which came into effect in 2016. The Act of Parliament allows the British Home Office to force technology companies to disable security features like end-to-end encryption without telling the public. The IPA also enables storage of internet browsing records and authorizes the bulk collection of personal data in the UK. Due to the secrecy surrounding these demands, little is known about how many of these have been issued and complied with. Currently, this process involves independent oversight via a review process, and tech companies can appeal before having to comply. Under the proposed update to the IPA, disabling security features without informing the public would have to be immediate. The UK government started an eight-week consultation process on the proposed amendments to the IPA open to professional bodies, interest groups, academia, and the wider public. Apple has submitted a nine-page long document condemning many of the changes. The company opposes the requirement to inform the Home Office of any changes to product security features before they are released, their requirement for non-UK-based companies to comply with changes that would affect their product globally, and having to take action immediately if a request to disable or block a feature is received from the Home Office without review or an appeals process. Apple also highlighted that some requested feature changes would require a software update, so could not be implemented without public knowledge. The company added that it would not make changes to security features specifically for one country that would weaken a product for all users, suggesting that services like FaceTime and iMessage would simply be removed in the UK if the amendments proceed. 
Apple, WhatsApp, and Signal also oppose a clause in the UK's proposed online safety bill that would allow its communications regulator to require companies to install technology to scan for CSAM in encrypted messaging apps and other services. Signal has threatened to leave the UK over the matter. So this is just one of many cases around the globe right now that are similar to this. There's stuff going on in the US about this. We talked about this with the Earn It Act. A lot of these governments are Again, pushing harder from different angles and different ways and different methodologies, trying to force these tech companies to either break end-to-end encryption or install surveillance capabilities on everybody's devices that would harm all of our privacy. And again, it may be one country adding it, but if you put it in your software, that software goes all around the planet. It's not like it's going to be limited to just one country. And so let's say that Apple complied and put in this surveillance capability in their phones. And now other countries are going to say, hey, we know that's in there. We want to use that too. And even if Apple was okay with the UK doing it and maybe the US doing it, what about China, Iran, some of these other countries that might want to do it, Russia? So anyway, this is an ongoing thing. Another story about this happening that I wanted to pass along to keep you updated. All right, two more stories, and they're both about APIs, or Application Programming Interfaces. The first one is about this new proposal from Google called the Web Integrity API. And it's kind of the next thing after Flock failed and after third-party cookies. It's supposedly for your benefit. It's supposedly to protect against fraud. But at the end of the day, it's really to preserve ad revenue. All right, let me read it, then I'll talk some more. This is from Ars Technica. Google's newest proposed web standard is DRM, which stands for Digital Rights Management. Over the weekend, the internet got wind of this proposal for a Web Environment Integrity API. The explainer is authored by four Googlers, in other words, Google employees, including at least one person at Chrome's Privacy Sandbox team, which was responding to the death of tracking cookies by building a user tracking ad platform right into the browser. The intro to the Web Integrity API starts out, quote, Users often depend on websites trusting the client environment they run in. This trust may assume that the client environment is honest about certain aspects of itself, keeps user data and an intellectual property secure, and is transparent about whether or not a human being is using it, unquote. The goal of the project is to learn more about the person on the other side of the web browser, ensuring that they aren't a robot or, and that the browser hasn't been modified or tampered with in any unapproved ways. The intro says this data would be useful to advertisers to better count ad impressions, stop social network bots, enforce intellectual property rights, that's the DRM part, stop cheating in web games, and help financial transactions be more secure. Perhaps the most telling line of the explainer is that it, quote, takes inspiration from existing native attestation signals such as Apple's App Attest and the Android Play Integrity API, unquote. Play Integrity, formerly called SafetyNet, is an Android API that lets apps find out if your device has been rooted. Root access allows you full control over the device that you purchased, and a lot of app developers don't like that. So if you root an Android phone and get flagged by the Android Integrity API, several types of apps will just refuse to run. You'll generally be locked out of banking apps, Google Wallet, online games, Snapchat, and some media apps like Netflix. You could be using your root access to cheat at games or fish banking data, But you could also just want to root to customize your device, remove crapware, or have a viable backup system. 
Play Integrity doesn't care and will lock you out of those apps either way. Google wants the same thing for the web. Google's plan is that, during a web page transaction, the web server could require you to pass an environmental attestation test before you get any data. At this point, your browser would contact a quote-unquote third-party attestation server, and you would need to pass some kind of test. If you passed, you would get a signed integrity token that verifies your environment is unmodified and points to the content you wanted unlocked. You bring this back to the web server, and if the server trusts the attestation company, you get the content unlocked and finally get a response with the data you wanted. Google likes to describe its APIs in a generic sense, but in reality, most of the actors in this play would probably be Google. Google may or may not be supplying the website, Chrome would be the browser, and the attestation server would definitely be from Google. Google's document Pinky promises the company doesn't want to use this for anything evil. The authors, quote-unquote, strongly feel the API shouldn't be used to uniquely fingerprint people, but they also want, quote, some indicator enabling rate limiting against a physical device, unquote. In the non-goals section, the product says it doesn't want to, quote, interfere with browser functionality, including plugins and extensions, unquote. That's a veiled reference to not killing ad blockers, even though the project mentions better ad advertising support at some of its goals. Chrome already has a kill ad blockers plan anyway, or at least watered down ad blockers plan. It's called Manifest V3, which will change the way critical extension APIs work so they can't modify web page content as effectively, which is something we've talked about before on the show. Google says it doesn't want to, quote, exclude other vendors, unquote, from its DRM scheme. Google hasn't done much in the way of public promotion of this idea yet, and even the documentation is only hosted on an employee's personal GitHub account rather than an official Google repo. The earliest proposal we can find is from April of 2022. Over the weekend, an updated spec was published, and the proposal got picked up by Hacker News and a user on YouTube. This caused the internet to descend onto the repo's GitHub issues forum and start absolutely cooking Google in the replies. Issue 131 calls the idea, quote, absolutely unethical and against the open web, unquote. Issue 113 says that they, quote, can't believe this is even proposed, unquote. Issue 127 adds, quote, have you ever stopped to consider that you're the bad guys, unquote. Another user posted a screed entirely in hexadecimal when translated starts with, quote, death to fascists, unquote, and wishes explosive diarrhea on everyone involved. So reception so far has been mixed. Exactly how the rest of the world feels about this is not necessarily relevant, though. Google owns the world's most popular web browser, the world's largest advertising network, the world's biggest search engine, the world's most popular operating system, and some of the world's most popular websites. So really, Google can do whatever it wants. Other projects like Chrome's Privacy Sandbox ad platform and the ad block limiting Manifest V3 have been universally panned, but Google has kept right on trucking with those projects. There have been some small project tweaks and delays, but Google keeps marching forward. For now, this is only a quote-unquote proposal API, but in May, Google published an intent-to-prototype notice, meaning it's building the feature into Chrome right now for testing. There's a page for feature development tracking on chromestatus.com. We've asked Google for a comment, and we'll update this page if it sends us anything. So I've heard a lot of discussion on this on some other places that I follow tech stuff on. And it's it's kind of hard to describe, but basically, basically what Google is trying to say is that some websites are being subjected to fraud. In a lot of cases, it's ad click fraud or things like that, 
where it's really a bot surfing to a web page that's claiming to be human. And that's why there's things like captions and things like that that are trying to block the bots. But then there are gaming websites, so they say that people are worried about perhaps, you know, the, the web browser has been modified somehow so that they can cheat at the game. That is a real problem. You know, financial websites might want to know more about their customers to make sure that they are real people and authenticate them better. But, you know, if you've already got an account, I'm not sure, you know, you got to log in anyway. I'm not sure what else they would want to do there. But basically, Google wants to <laughs> control the client environment. In other words, your web browser or an app that's trying to visit uh, a web page. And by trying to learn more about the device or the app or the, the browser and therefore the user behind those things, they could absolutely use those things to track us, even though they say they're not going to, and improve their ad business. So while a lot of this is couched in, you know, trying to be helpful, at the end of the day, what they're really trying to do is preserve their business model. Now, let's contrast that with our last story here from Mac Rumors about Apple. In an effort to bolster user privacy, developers will need to justify their use of certain Apple APIs before their apps can be listed on the App Store, according to a new article on the Apple developer site spotted by 9to5Mac. The developer website now lists some APIs as, quote, required reason APIs, unquote, meaning that developers have to clarify why they are using them in their privacy manifest. Some commonly used APIs, such as user defaults, which stores user preferences, now fall under the required reason category. With the launch of watchOS 10, iOS 17, iPadOS 17, tvOS 17, and macOS Sonoma later this year, developers will receive a warning if they submit apps using a required reason API without specifying its usage. From spring 2024, any apps using these APIs without a legitimate justification will be rejected in the review process. Apple explains that the main reason for this change is to curb fingerprinting, a method used to track users across different apps and websites. Fingerprinting uses API calls to gather details about a user's device, such as screen resolution, model, and operating system. This data is then used to create a unique fingerprint, enabling the user to be identified across various apps or websites. According to Apple, required reason APIs will guarantee that apps only employ these APIs for their prescribed use. In the event of a rejection, Apple will permit developers to contest the decision and submit a request for approval if their case does not fit within the existing guidelines. Then it says, see the app developer site for more info. So actually, I like, believe it or not, I actually like an idea that came from Google around this kind of a thing. And again, this is a situation where Apple has been trying to give the user much more control about being tracked and having this app tracking transparency feature that they came up with a while back, the ATT. Everyone basically was given the option to say, would you like this app to track you? And everybody basically said no. And that really ticked off companies like Facebook and others that were using that tracking to make money off of you. And so <laughs> that prevented them from tracking you with the unique ID. And so what some of those companies have done instead, and again, this is against Apple policy, but it's really hard for them to track this. They are using some of these APIs, some of these interfaces uh, with the device to query your phone, for example, or your computer about some of these technical details about your computer or your apps or things that are going on in your computer, looking for specific information that makes you unique. And if I take enough of this information, like what's your screen resolution, what version of the operating system are you using, what other apps do you have installed? If I ask enough of these questions, get detailed responses, that the chances that somebody else is going to have the exact same answers to those questions is minimal. 
Meaning that I, if I took the answers to all these questions in aggregate and looked at them together, that complete set of answers would be unique to you. And therefore, if I keep asking those questions later, I can determine, oh, this is the same person. I can track this person because this person's device had the same answers to the same questions. It's probably the same person. And Apple is basically saying, okay, well, we're going to clamp down on that. We're going to require that if you are going to use some of these revealing APIs, asking revealing questions uh, and details that potentially could be used with other information to create a fingerprint, you're going to have to justify using them. And actually, I think they should go further than that. The idea that Google had a while back that I commented on here was to actually give them a privacy budget and say, okay, here's, here's all the APIs, but of these APIs that might be used potentially to get some very detailed information about the user or the device that could then be used for fingerprinting, you can use some of these APIs and ask some of these questions, but you can't do them all. And you could basically have a budget for saying, okay, each of these APIs potentially gives away this much information, and you can only have so much information. So you could use whichever of these privacy-related APIs you want, but you can't use them all. Anyway, this is this is the cat and mouse game that we're playing with trying to protect user privacy and yet still allow for really cool apps that do cool things without hopefully abusing your privacy. But it's easy to see that Google's an ad company and a- Apple isn't, at least not primarily. And how that affects their priorities uh, in, in, in reference to their users' privacy. All right, that is your news for the week. So now it is time for the tip of the week. As, as I said, we're going to skip the Dear Carey question this week. I'm running out of time. So let's get to the tip of the week. And this is a follow-up to my series, what will be a series of articles, uh, blog articles and newsletter articles um, and tips of the week about better protecting your home network. And the one we talked about last week was, I'm guessing is going to probably be the hardest step in this entire process. And that is enumerating everything on your home network. That is not easy to do, especially today with all of our IoT devices. We've probably got things that are on the network that we forgot are on the network. And last week I told you how to do that. But uh, honestly, I would probably just go read the article on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons titled Secure Your Network IoT Inventory. And it will explain in painstaking detail how you can figure out all the devices on your home network. So let's say you've done that. Let's stipulate that you now have in front of you a list of all the devices that are on your home network. Now what? Well, this this week's tip is going to be much easier to accomplish and won't take nearly as much explanation. And that is simplify. Step two in this process, step one was to scan. Step two is to simplify. And so before we go to any great lengths to try to secure the devices or mitigate the risks of the devices that are on your home network, let's make sure that we actually want those devices on your home network. For example, almost every TV you buy today is a smart TV. It has a probably an Ethernet jack on the back or at least a Wi-Fi connection. And as soon as you plug that puppy in for the first time, it walks you through the setup and, the, and it wants you to give it the Wi-Fi password so it can get on the network and give you all these really cool network-based features, these smart features. I do not trust any smart TV these days. They track you mercilessly. It is paying attention to what you watch. I know that sounds like a conspiracy theory kind of thing, but trust me, it is not. So instead of using the Netflix app that comes on my TV, for example, I have a separate streaming box and I have, as you might guess, I have an Apple TV box and I run my apps from there. Is it perfectly private? No. Some of those apps still want to track you, but it's way better than your TV. 
So I don't need my TV to be smart. I just let it be dumb. I never connect it to Wi-Fi, which means it never gets software updates. But if it's not on the network, I don't care. I'm not missing any security updates, really, because if it's not on the network, it's not vulnerable. But there also may be older devices that you'd forgotten about that, that you didn't realize were on your network. So if you don't need them anymore, certainly if you don't need the smart features they provide anymore, you can take them off of your network. Now, they can still do some of these things anyway, can still operate just fine without being on the network. Again, like a dumb TV. For all I need it for, it works just fine, not connected to my network. But if you've run across a device that is really old, that can't be updated, for example, that doesn't take software updates or is no longer supported with software updates, at this point, you might want to consider either taking it off your network and just not using it anymore, or maybe replacing it with something else, something more modern, something more secure, something with, with that's updatable software-wise, maybe sooner or later, something with this cool little Shield logo, the, U, the US Cybermark. And the other thing I think you really should be thinking about right now before you go any further is your home router. Your router is basically the bouncer for your front door or the guard at your castle gate. Pick your analogy. But it's in charge of keeping out the bad guys, keeping probes from the, from the broader internet, from anywhere on the planet, from getting into the devices in your home, which may or may not be vulnerable. It's, it's protecting those devices from unwanted attention outside of your network. So if you've got an older router that is not updatable or not updated or no longer supported or uses really old, you know, encryption protocols, like you should definitely have a router that supports WPA2 or later. WPA3 is much more common now. You can find routers today that actually have automatic software updates so you don't have to manually update it yourself. Now is the time to think about your router. And I will say one little tip, if you do replace your router, is that I would give it the same SSID, uh, you know, whatever your home network is called when you look it up on, you know, join this network, you know, whatever that's called, that's your SSID. I would go ahead and give it the same SSID and the same uh, encryption password, at least to start with, because that way, when it first comes back up, all your wireless devices will automatically reconnect. And then in later discussions about this, I'll tell you about maybe changing that uh, encryption password. But for simplicity, when you're first replacing it, at this stage of the game, I would just give it the same SSID and password. Now, if you only have, you know, one or two devices that are on Wi-Fi and that's your laptop and your smartphone, it's not that big of a deal to change to a new SSID and password. But if you've got a lot of IoT devices, uh, it would probably make your life much simpler at the start to keep things the same so that they will just auto-connect when, when you uh, commission your new router. All right, so that's actually it. Uh, this is the step where we simplify. Let's make sure that before we go to the trouble of updating these devices and doing research on these devices, let's reduce our attack surface by as much as possible uh, before we take that next step. So that is your tip of the week. Uh, we will have more in this series uh, on my next news show. All right, everybody, that is your news and your tip of the week. Thank you again for tuning in. I've got a really cool interview coming up next week in honor of DEF CON and Hacker Summer Camp. Uh, I will be out of town. I will be in Las Vegas, Nevada. So I'm going to be getting this uh, interview recorded and edited and posted before I go, including the uh, special bonus content for my patrons. And then I will be in Las Vegas. I will have my portable recording rig with me. I will have a laptop with me. I'm going to try to record and edit my podcast and post it from Vegas. So it will not quite have the same quality of sound 
as you're getting right now. And it's going to be a little different. I, I'm probably going to get some, you know, hacker on the street interviews as I'm, as I'm walking around the conference. I'm not exactly sure who I'm going to talk to yet, but I'm going to try to kind of bring the experience to you and try to bring you some of the news that will inevitably drop at DEF CON. Well, we will see how it goes. Uh, so it's possible that not next Monday, but the Monday after that, it's possible that the podcast will not drop on Monday. It might come out Tuesday instead. So just FYI. I've got some other great interviews coming on the pike. Uh, make sure you subscribe. That way you won't miss it. Remember the Dragon Coin Challenge promotion is going on. If you've ever considered becoming a patron, now would be a great time to do that. Go to fdsd.me slash promo eight. as in August of 2023, 823, or just go to my website and search on the coin promotion. You'll find it there too. And become a patron. There's some really great benefits. Uh, It's a lot of fun to being in the Discord groups. We've got our InfoSec book club. We've got the extra bonus patron podcast content. Lots of great perks. So check that out. If you wanted to become a patron, now's a great time because if you meet the criteria, I will be sending you one of my super cool security enhancing firewalls don't stop dragons challenge coins all right everybody that'll do it for this week take care stay safe out there and until next week as always don't get caught with your drawbridge down